You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, Psalm 141. So this is a Psalm of David. Let me just pray before we get into this. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And again, now we'd ask that you would help us to see the truths within it, to mine just the gold that you offer us through this uh, treasure that we have here in these uh, covers. We'd ask now that we would see Jesus. Amen. So we see another prayer of David. And it is a very, as all of his psalms are, honest prayer, a a prayer of desperation in many ways, as we've seen David pray so many times, just raw emotion coming out of him. But it gives us just some wonderful imagery and an opportunity just to speak about prayer. Now, let's just read the first couple of verses. It says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. So we learn a lot about prayer and about the believer in this psalm. And if you could just take one thing away from tonight, it is simply this, that we have to pray as a church. And the the more I'm into this role now and the more I'm looking at things in a slightly different way, I keep coming back to the fact that I don't pray enough. Like, I don't know if any of you ever feel like that, but, you know, you read these great biographies of these people who spend two or three hours in prayer every morning before they'd start the day and you don't you just can't get your head around how you'd fit that into your life in in our day but it also awakens uh, something within you to think what what it must be like after a year of living like that that intimacy that you must come away with from the lord and that's something that we can all i hope we would all want to grow in that area in our lives and david i believe is a very good example for us to look at he says i call upon you so this is the first thing we notice about david he goes directly to the lord in prayer and this is of course the privilege of every true believer and we need to remember this we don't need to go to a priest first you don't need to come to the pastor first you don't need any intermediary to go to prayer. You don't have to leave your prayers with Mary. You don't have to uh, add them to a long list of cues for someone higher up to pray for you. You see this in many parts of the, quote, Christian world. But we have the privilege of going straight to the king with our prayers. And this is something that Jesus paid for. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. The Christian writer E.M. Bounds, he wrote a lot on prayer, if you're familiar with his works, I'd recommend reading them. He said, prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. He was one of these guys I'm talking about, spent hours in prayer. And if you're totally honest, Sometimes prayer can feel like a bit of a duty, can't it? It's something we know we need to do to grow in our Christian life. For me, my struggle is always, I, I, need to, I want to get up and I want to start studying the Word of God immediately. But that sometimes comes over the top of spending some time in prayer before we do that. Often they're together, but that's just, we all have this tendency, we just want to get on with stuff. And sometimes it's hard to slow yourself down, to slow your mind down, and just to have that time where you're waiting on the Lord, thinking on the Lord, communing with the Lord, or just listening. It's a lost art, I would say, but one we see a lot uh, throughout the Bible. He says, hasten to me. I call upon you, hasten to me. And you see his boldness here in prayer. 
This was not someone who didn't know the Lord well. He knew the Lord well. He was intimate with him to the sense that he could say in typical Jewish fashion, a bold prayer, hasten to me. Hear me quickly is basically what he's saying. Answer me quickly. There is an immediate danger and I have need of you right now. That's basically what what this uh, psalmist is expressing here. Answer me quickly. He says, may my prayer be counted as incense before you. The lifting up of my hands is the evening offering. So we have this beautiful threefold imagery here, prayer, incense, and the evening offering. This is, of course, referencing the tabernacle, the the rituals that went on during the tabernacle. The evening offering is about 3 p.m. It's the afternoon time of prayer. And again, this is another thing. In the early Christian church, I've probably mentioned this before, of course we can pray any time we want throughout the day. Our lives should always be in a constant readiness that we're in fellowship with the Lord to pray. But it is a very biblical thing to set aside certain parts of the day for specific prayer, like a routine. The early church did this a lot. There are whole devotionals. You remember Spurgeon's famous devotional that everyone has, morning and evening it's called. Where, where this is where he gets that from. It was based on the morning and the evening offerings that they used to bring in the tabernacle and in the temple. And obviously now we have no longer have that. We have that once for all offering, but we still bring our offerings. It's said to be the fruit of our lips, our prayer, our praise and ourselves as that sacrifice. These are the things that we do. So it is in many ways still very biblical to set aside a time in the evening and the morning where you are devoted and praying to the Lord. I know that's sometimes hard in the busyness of a day. Three o'clock's the middle of the day for us still, uh, if you're working. But it's the principle that we can still apply into our own lives. But what do we notice here? That the thought patterns of David, his prayer life, is influenced by the word of God. You see, the incense offering, the evening offering, these were biblical prescriptions. They were things that they were commanded to do within the Torah, within the Bible, So this tells us that he was so in touch with these directions for worship that he found in God's word that his very prayer life and his prayer language here is ordered by the word of God. And that is a lesson, I believe, for us, another thing that we must take from this psalm. We must order our lives by the word of God, particularly how we worship. That's something that the word of God speaks a lot about. But this is the tabernacle language here for David. So we have the incense the altar of incense. Remember that when you study the tabernacle? The tabernacle is one of those amazing pieces of the Old Testament found in the book of Exodus. All these long, drawn-out details of this furniture, of this tent of meeting that they were commanded to make, but yet underneath every layer there seems to just be more and more depth of how the tabernacle reveals to us the dwelling place of God and ultimately Jesus Christ. We see this in the New Testament when the Gospel of John introduces Jesus Christ and it uses the tabernacle language. The Lord tabernacled among us, it literally says, in the incarnation. This is all drawing from the book of Exodus here. So you had the tabernacle, you had the outer court, the inner court, or the holy, the, the holy place as it was called, and then you had the holy of holies. So you had the outer court, which was external, within the fence of the tabernacle. You had the bronze altar there and the the lava to wash. But ultimately, it was the bronze altar that was the first thing that you had in the tabernacle courtyard. Then you had inside the actual tent of the tabernacle, you had the holy place. Not the holy of holies, just the holy or the, the inner court, as some people call it there. And in that inner court, you had the golden menorahs, you had the table of shewbread, and you had the altar of incense. These are the three things. Now, I find all of this stuff absolutely fascinating. 
But remember what the, the large bronze altar was for. That was for the burning of animal sacrifices. The large bronze altar spoke to us of sacrifice. And it says that that altar was the first thing you see, basically, when you come into there. You don't go past any further until you've confronted this massive altar with burning animals. And, of course, we can see the symbolism there, that that is teaching us of the ultimate altar, which was the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus offered there. You don't go any further into the Holy of Holies. You have to come through the sacrifice of Christ. And then on our journey, we move inwards, and we have this altar of incense and there were strict prescriptions of what was to be burnt this incense had to be specially made of the finest ingredients you can read about them in the book of exodus it's quite interesting but there's a few fascinating things about this altar of incense that i believe david has in his mind here the altar had to be continually burning with incense and again it was the night and morning where the priests would come in and they would fill it up and they were responsible for making sure that it was always burning now, if you think about that, this was a fairly large altar and a, not a particularly large tent. And it wasn't a ventilated tent of any sort, really, any more than tents of, obviously are. But that's a lot of smoke. If you've ever seen incense smoke, that's a lot of smoke. So if you're thinking about those priests in there at this time, often when you see pictures of the tabernacle, you don't see a thick, dark cloud of smoke in there, do you? You don't really see that. You see a little bit coming up. But I, I think it would have been much more than that. You would have, this was a, quite a lot of incense, the amount they had to burn on these altars. And I find this fascinating because throughout the Bible, you see incense used as a representation of prayer, the prayers of the saints. It's wonderful imagery to use in light of the actual physical reality of it. It constantly burns upwards. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. It fills the space that it is burned into, and it even goes out of the space and just diffuses into the air. It's much like prayer. Revelation 5, verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And there's other places we see the symbolism. This psalm, actually, for example, we see the symbolism here. There's so much typology with this imagery that's being suggested. Let me read to you just from Exodus 30, just a couple of verses. It's a very long passage. There's a couple of things I want to pull out. Exodus 30, verse 6 to 8. It says, You shall put this altar, this is the altar of incense, in front of the veil that is near the ark of testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Perpetual incense. The prayers of God's people should be perpetual. This is what Paul is getting at. I believe he's referencing this when he says, you know, constantly be in prayer. That's what he's actually, I believe this is the background, he's a you know, Jewish man, this is probably what he's referencing, this, this kind of thing here. But notice something else. It says, place the altar right in front of the veil. Now this is not the external door to enter this outer inner court. This is the veil from the inner court to the Holy of Holies. So where you had the ark behind there with the mercy seat. No one was allowed behind there. Only the high priest once a year and even that with extreme precautions and measures. But 
If you think about this, I believe there's a beautiful picture that we have here. Although physically they could not enter, only one person could once a year. But think of that incense, told to be placed right in front of it, in front of this veil. What would have happened to that incense? It would have, without a doubt, without any problem at all, gone past that veil and filled up that Holy of Holies. You see, prayer can take us where we physically cannot go. And that is one of the main lessons I believe I want to take from this. Prayer can reach places we cannot see. We can pray for people across the other parts of the world. We read from Hebrews, prayer can take us into the very throne room of God. And you have just a wonderful picture of that here in this tabernacle furniture. The burning incense perpetually, morning and evening, wafting its way around the entire tabernacle room into the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat, where God dwelt. And you have this picture here. It's just an amazing uh, picture. This is a lesson for us. Another crucial lesson on this theme of incense. Incense was useless until fire was added to it. When you read these prescriptions, you'll learn they made this incense, but it pretty much just sat there with very little fragrance. I'd imagine you have to put your nose down to it to smell it before it was burnt. But it says when they take it to the altar of incense... They have to light it on fire. They use coals, and that's what causes the steam and the burning. Now, I find this fascinating if we stay with the symbolism. (laughs) It lay still without the fire. No smoke, no smells, no vapours, no wafting around, no filling the room, nothing. And I think prayers from a cold heart don't rise to the throne room of God in that same way. We can, if, we, if I could take that analogy into that direction. If you find yourself silent in prayer, tongue-tied silence, I mean, uh, not knowing what to say, not enjoying your time studying with the Lord, praying with the Lord, if you have that burden, then it may be time to ask yourself, how is the fire doing in your own soul? How is it doing in your heart? That's a good question. I think every now and then every Christian should examine themselves in that manner to see where they are with the Lord. But I want to take this further. This is fascinating for me, and this really spoke to me. If you find yourself in that place, and we all do occasionally, when you're in those dry places with the Lord for whatever reason, where does the fire come from? And this is fascinating. You have to pull out the details by reading some of these long chapters in the Torah. Leviticus 16, verse 12. This is just a tiny part of it. You can trace it down yourselves. He says, He shall take a firepan full of coals of fire, from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and he'll bring it inside. And there's other parallel passages you can use. Basically, where did the fire come from for that altar of incense? The priest had to take it from the altar outside, the bronze altar, the one that's continually burning for sacrifices. And they would bring in on a little shovel these coals and they would put it on the altar of incense and then they would burn their incense. And I find that fascinating because... What does the altar outside symbolise? The cross of Christ. It's ultimately pointing towards the sacrifice of Christ. Where does the fire come from for our prayer life? The cross of Christ. We would do well, if you're feeling dry, to dwell on the cross of Christ. Come back to the cross. Think about what he did for us, what what the cross demonstrates, the love that it shows us. Remember that song, Simply to the Cross I Cling. Everything in our lives flows out of that sacrifice that Christ accomplished. It's the first thing that we see and everything flows from it. Even our prayer life, especially our prayer life, in fact, flows from it. And you have that symbolism here carried out 
in the tabernacle. Use that to light the fire in your heart. The more, sometimes it's good just to strip everything back to the simplicity of that sacrifice, the, the simple cross, the old rugged cross, as we say. It will focus your mind and your heart, and it will produce that incense in your life that rises up again like the freshly lit, kindled incense of the altar. And it will fill the space you inhabit. It will be smelt and seen by those around you. You know someone who spends a lot of time in prayer. If you've ever met a Christian like that, there's something different about them often. Not all the time, but it's just obvious when someone has had that good time with the Lord. You probably experienced this. You have had good times of prayer with the Lord. It's exciting. You want to tell someone about it. You want other people to do it. And that's just part of being a Christian. It's one of the joys of being a Christian. The altar of incense teaches us a lot about prayer. Let's just carry on verses 3 and 4. So set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. So he starts off with this beautiful introduction to prayer, a man obviously in a desperate situation, crying out to his Lord with this boldness. And now he asks that the Lord will keep him from evil. And again, you see David here, and you see the greater teaching of the greater David, Jesus Christ here. Keep my lips from speaking evil and stop my heart from doing evil things. Now, there's a few other ways you could phrase that. Pray in this manner, lead us not into temptation. Remember that prayer? This is just, again, what Jesus teaches him to pray. As I often will tell you, the Lord's Prayer is not some fantastically magical new prayer that Jesus just imagined out of himself. It's a thoroughly Jewish prayer that draws upon all the themes of the Old Testament and you'll find every theme of them in the Old Testament and you'll also find most of it in extra-biblical Jewish literature too. But of course, shaped in a way that only Christ can give us. But it's drawing on themes from the Old Testament. David here is drawing on this same thing. You, you ask the Lord not to lead you into temptation. And notice what he puts as the focus of temptation. How many times has this come up in the Psalms? It's the tongue. The tongue is just <laughs> such a problem in our lives. You have it in the Old Testament, you have it in the book of Proverbs, if, if you've studied through that. The book of James has a lot to say about the tongue. He, he, he sort of puzzles at the fact that it can be a source of blessing and cursing at the same time both water and fire, it can destroy things or it can build things up. That is the tongue, and it's often a source where we get ourselves into trouble. And then he says, do not incline my heart to any evil thing. This is the, our sin nature, our flesh often inclines our heart to do things which it desires in its sinfulness, those things that come across our path to tempt us. It's harder sometimes if you surround yourself with people who are doing what we would call evil things, who are walking in sin without any acknowledgement, really. Sometimes it's wise to keep good company. He says here, um, keep me away, basically, if you look at those last verses, with men who do iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. It's very unusual wording in the Hebrew, that, that word delicacy. I think it's the only time we find that in the entire Bible. I think there's something... Um, Similar in the New Testament where it's talking about the pleasures of sin. They're passing, they're deceitful pleasures of sin, but for that brief fleeting moment they seem pleasurable. I think that's what he's getting at here. The picture he's looking at is surrounded by unbelieving people, engaging 
in acts of evilness, if you are constantly in that environment, you will eventually become more and more tempted to partake in what they are doing. And the only antidote to that, because that's sometimes our situation, not by our own choice, just by positions we're put in in the working world, but quite often by our own choice, if we're honest. But the antidote to that is what David is doing, to pray. We've just learnt about it in a crying out to the Lord of prayer. You pray, lead me not into temptation. Keep my lips from speaking evil. Keep my heart from desiring things that would destroy me and lead me into sin. Keep me away from those who would give me greater temptation to sin. These are good practical lessons for prayer. Verse 5. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. For still my prayer is against their wicked deeds. Their judges are thrown down by the sides of the rock and they hear my words for they are pleasant as when one ploughs and breaks open the earth our bones have been scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Very hard thought to actually try and understand what he's getting at here. Commentators are completely divided. The thought to me looking at it overall seems to be that in a situation where he is surrounded by wicked people and being tempted It is the presence of righteous friends and their loving rebuke that is like oil on his head, that is like that sweet anointing of the Lord. And it's really, for me, uh, you know, the wounds of a friend. Remember that, that kind of analogy that we're looking at here. It's better to be rebuked and have someone who loves you and care for you point you in the right direction when you are going off path. And it takes... um, It takes usually a, a mature believer to be able to do that in a way that does not cause more friction and more heat. It's quite, a, it's quite a skill to be able to reprove someone in a way that actually does edify like that. There's a f- lovely little story about John Wesley from a, a very old magazine. John Wesley travelled most of his time on horsebacks or in stagecoach. Um, so he would get pulled around in a, in a coach by horses from his meetings, uh, hundreds, hundreds, thousands of miles there's one story where he was the stagecoach officer, as they would call them. It's basically, this is like a, an insight into what we might call a cab driver today. They, you know, sometimes fascinating to speak to them because they see so much and hear so much. It seems to be John Wesley was in these, one of these situations. He had a very colourful stagecoach driver pulling him around. However, John Wesley really, really appreciated this man. He found his, his conversation sprightly and entertaining, but he said it was frequently mingled with profanity. And when they were about to take to the next stage, Mr. Wesley took the officer aside and after expressing the sheer pleasure he'd enjoyed in his company, he told him that he was encouraged to ask him a very great favour. So Mr. Wesley, John Wesley, phrased it like, I've had a great time with you, can you do me one favour? And the man said, he said, I'm I'm sure uh, I would take pleasure in obliging you. I'm sure you will not make an unreasonable request. And then said Mr. Wesley, as we have to travel together some time, I beg that if I should so far forget myself as to swear, will you kindly reprove me? So he obviously just flipped it round on him in a delicate way, but it, it sort of de- takes, uh, deflates the conversation from being confrontational. And it says that the officer immediately saw his motive and he felt the force of the request and he said, none but Mr. Wesley could have conceived a reproof in such a clever manner. And he, he obviously, that's the end of the story there, but I find that a lovely little story from John Wesley's life. I see something similar in the words of David here about the righteous smiting him in kindness and that kind of a thing. So look at verse 8. For my eyes are toward you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenceless. 
Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. So here is the antidote really to all temptation in our Christian walks and to all the traps set by the wicked one, set by the world that we may see. And that is quite simply to keep your eyes on God. I say quite simply, it's simple to say, I know it's much harder in reality, but prayer is connected to that concept because prayer is probably the main way that we keep our focus and our gaze on the Lord. It's the main way that we order the direction of our life. Makes you think of Hebrews, doesn't it? Fix your eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's very similar to what David is saying here when he says, lift up your eyes in that manner. We look with the eyes of faith in many ways, because of course, when we say lift up your eyes, we don't lift up and actually physically see the Lord in that respect. So this is a little bit more referring to the spiritual component. It's speaking of the eyes of faith, or in the Bible you'll have this called about the eyes of your heart. We sing that song, don't we? Open the eyes of my heart. That's another, another concept that comes from this. Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We look to Christ in all his glorious being, his beauty, his majesty, his infinite eternal love. We get to gaze upon him in such a way that everything else will pale in, in comparison. Another famous song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. The things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. I see that again here being kind of what David, the theme David is getting at. After he's just cried out to the Lord for all these things, he finishes by saying, I lift up my eyes to you, Lord. This is the principle I believe he's getting at. He knew this too well. One day we shall see the Lord in reality, but now we see the eye with the eyes of faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let let, let light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We fix our eyes upon the face of Christ Jesus. The eyes of our hearts, the eyes of faith do this. And when we do that, we see the glory of Jesus. We see the glory of God magnified. And it reminds me again of that incense going through into the Holy of Holies. What was in the Holy of Holies? the Shekinah glory of God dwelling above the mercy seat. Prayer brings you into that glory. It helps you see that glory. It feeds into your life in that respect. It orders your life. It helps you not to fall into temptation. Prayer is vital for the Christian life. Let's go straight into Psalm 142. It's a very similar theme, so we're not going to spend too long in it. I'm going to just read most of it and say a few things. We see David living all these things I've just said very practically now in this psalm. Here is another episode. We do get some context here. It says, if you notice your little uh, superscription, it will say where he was in a cave. So this is one of those events where he was fleeing from Saul and he was hiding uh, in the caves. He says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me 
no one cares for my soul. See, David was a raw prayer. You see, he often was in trouble and he just poured it all out before the Lord. And I say that literally, verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. You see, that's boldness. We, you know, that, but that's real. That's an honest prayer. There's no point coming to the Lord in prayer and trying to use um, some sort of overly holy and reverent language because the Lord knows your heart and he knows if that's not quite where you're at. He wants to hear where you're at. I think David gives us a great example. The word pour out there, it literally does mean to spill over. That's, that's the concept here. So David was so full of trouble at this point in his life, so full of emotion, fear, anxiety. I mean, he was on the run, remember, from a king who was trying to kill him. He was hiding in a cave at this time, even though he was the anointed king. But he was, that was where he was. And so much so that all of these things just overflowed. And this is what I find fascinating, though. All of those fears and emotions, for a lot of people, those things would overflow and they'd produce anger. They produce us to pick up a sword, maybe if we were in that situation, and fight. They produce all these different sorts of things in us. In David, they overflowed into prayer. That was what they did. They overflowed into prayer. Now, it's a good place to ask ourselves, do our prayers have that sort of intensity? Do we just literally spill over with what is in our, our heart and our mind uh, in prayer? Our thoughts, the Lord knows the deepest thoughts of our hearts. It's a good example to do that. And notice... Verse 2, I pour out my complaint, it says, before him. Again, David is in a cave in the, in the wilderness of Judea at this time, but he still knows when he prays and cries out to the Lord, he is before the Lord. Think of that incense again, going behind the veil to the presence of the Lord. He knows what his prayer is, and this is the key. Everything that we have in life, our thoughts, our problems, our troubles, our joys, we lay them before the Lord in prayer. That is what we do. And often, I think more often, we quite like to lay them before other people first. Quite often when we have a trouble, when we have a grievance, a complaint, our tendency is to want to actually tell someone about that first, and quite often we do that. And we've all done that. We understand that, that need. Sometimes you want affirmation, sometimes you're just frustrated, but we do that. But I believe the best model that we can have from David, or the one that's probably going to... <laughs> Um, produce the most fruit or reconciliation in that situation is to pour it out before the Lord first. There is a time for doing things with other brothers and sisters if it's done in the right manner. There is definitely a time. But first, you pour it out to the Lord. He says, you knew my path in the way where I walk. So this again shows us David's intimacy with the Lord. He knew that the Lord knew everything about him. The Lord knew every circumstance in his life. He knew that at this time he was hiding in a cave, he was alone and he was desperate. And that gave him confidence that the Lord was still with him in this situation. Verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. So again, for a second time now, he cries out to the Lord. And I kind of picture this. You imagine him in a cave. You know what it's like when you shout in a cave? You know, it just echoes, it's loud. And it's a, I almost picture David here. He's hiding in the wilderness from the armies of Saul. And he's just... He's not really hiding very well if you're shouting and you're audibly 
praying, crying out in a cave, but you know, again, he doesn't care. You know the Lord is ordering his steps right here. This is the image that I see here. Notice it says, he says, as he's crying out, you are my refuge. We've seen that theme of refuge come up multiple times in the Psalms. Speaks of security, speaks of safety, a place to flee to. The cities of refuge, again, comes from the Old Testament. They were special places where people could flee to. But he also says, my portion in the land of a living. And that's a slightly different word than refuge. It gives you a slightly different connotation. While David is living in the land of the living, he knows that the Lord is his portion. That means he knows that the Lord is all he should desire and need. God himself will fulfill all the longings of the human heart. David knows this is true. It again is hearkening back, I believe, to Numbers 18, verse 20, where the, the Levites were told, you don't get any of the land in the promised land. It says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. God was their portion. God was their inheritance. And of course, for us, the priesthood of believers of the New Testament covenant, I believe that kind of applies to us too. The Lord is our inheritance. He says he's been brought low, verse 7, uh, verse 6 rather. He's been brought very low. And the world can do that to us. You may have experienced that many times in your life. Living in a broken, sinful world, surrounded by people, believer or unbeliever, who are all still broken, all still sinners, all still being sanctified into the image of Christ, the world sometimes can bring you very low. The world can do this. But, remember David here, he knows he's not alone. You may be low, but you are not alone and forsaken. That's one of the promises of the gospel. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are still an adopted child of the king. And in this state, he cries out, he knows the Lord will deliver him. He phrases it, bring my soul out of prison, a wonderful way of phrasing it there. And then what I love is that the Lord is doing this for a specific purpose, raising his people up so that I may give thanks to your name, so that you may proclaim the testimonies of what God has done in our lives. And is this not one of the greatest ways to express what God has done in all of our lives when we sing praises to him, when we pray to him, when we take these things seriously and we give thanks to his name. That's why the public giving of thanks is quite an important part of communal worship and public prayer times like that have this sort of effect. So we can give thanks to his name. And then he says, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully for me. And I kind of picture him coming out of the cave at some point and meeting up with his mighty men and having, having those sudden camaraderie that he has from all these different uh, people that we meet throughout the historical books of the Old Testament. And for us, I think this also applies. We find that fellowship of the righteous within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a non-negotiable for the Christian. It is something you are part of organically, joined to. We don't go it alone. There may be times in your life when you have to, but ultimately we know we are to be part of a Christian fellowship. And I would say your enjoyment of the body of Christ, those times when you're praying with the saints, when you're together with the saints, even if you're rubbing each other the wrong way, you're still in the, bother, the community of the righteous, your enjoyment of the body of Christ will probably be directly related to your prayer life to how much you are praying for the body of Christ, how much you are praying with the body of Christ, all of these things, I believe, will be very much connected. And again, this is why you had the entire Levitical priesthood who were designed to do things 
with the altar of incense, with all the altars, to make the running of these things smooth for the nation when they would come for these times of communal prayer. It's again a great picture of what we do in the church in many ways. So that's 141, 142. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.